1: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The HSE's Director of National Health Protection has said that Strep A is being investigated as one of the possible causes in the death of a four-year-old child in the northeast, North Dublin region. Tonight, we also look at why more women are being forced into the sex trade here in Ireland, and also how 40 Irish children were victims of online child sexual exploitation this year having had their images shared online.
2: depends who they're sharing with, and it also depends where that image ultimately ends up. It, it generally isn't just one person to one person. Unfortunately, these things can go
3: viral.
1: And later, Condé Nast magazine has declared Dublin a must-see city, must city visit this Christmas. Do you agree with that? You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag tonight VMTV. First tonight, 40 children from Ireland were found to be victims of online child sexual exploitation this year, according to Gardaí. The online material was shared by Interpol, two officers here. Most of the child victims are young girls under the age of 16 and Gardaí said that on some occasions victims can be a very young age. I'm joined by author and advocate Mia Doring, Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond, Ruth Breslin, who is the lead researcher of the Sexual Exploitation Research Programme at UCD, and psychotherapist Richard Hogan. Um, But first to come to you, Neil Richmond, on the murder of uh, Cormac Berkeley outside his home in Clondauken. It has sent shockwaves throughout the capital, um, a murder on this scale and so close to Christmas.
4: Yeah, it's an extremely worrying and scary event. It's unfortunately linked to gangland activity. We have seen huge advances by Angarda Shia Khan in terms of stamping out gangland activity, particularly in the capital, compared to, say, five years ago. But it's a case in point in making sure the resources are there with our, RG, our Gardaí to make sure they can address this at source, and most importantly, crack down on those who are responsible for this horrendous murder.
1: Okay. Now to talk tonight about the child exploitation investigation, which found that 40 Irish children were victims of online child sexual exploitation. We can now take a look at what Superintendent Ian Lackey from the Garda National Protective Service Bureau had to say about it earlier today.
2: It depends who they're sharing with and it also depends where that image ultimately ends up. It it generally isn't just one person to one person. Unfortunately, these things can go viral. Uh, the, the person that gets them might share them, people might fall out, uh, you know, and images might be shared and that causes significant harm and distress, you know, uh, for, the, for the young person that sent the picture originally.
1: Um, our panel is with us here tonight. To come to you first, Richard Hogan, on this, uh, what struck me about this was in the majority of those mm-hmm. cases, the material was actually self-generated mm so generated by the children themselves and then shared online on regular social media platforms. So in most cases, we're not looking at the dark web. These are regular platforms that millions of people use globally. And this extreme danger here that this material can go anywhere.
5: Mm. And that's the issue here, the imperpetuity of these images. And I think this conversation is embedded in a wider conversation. It's around pornography. I think our children are becoming sexualized a lot earlier, Claire, and it's a very serious thing. And I think we have to to really look at this as a society and think, you know, how do we protect our children from consuming hardcore material? I work with this all the time in my clinic and I sit with teenage girls and I sit with teenage boys and I hear what the girls say to me about what they were asked for in their relationship. I mean, it it is terrifying stuff. And I sit with boys and I sit with real sadness and pain in isolation as they try to figure out how to get themselves out of their habit of pornography. And it's feeding all of this stuff because it's normalizing, it's normalizing taking images of yourself because they're, consumed, they're, they're consuming these hardcore ma- images. And so it's all somehow kind of normalized. And so sending an image is not such a big thing. They don't think, they don't, adolescents don't have risk adverse thinking. They don't, think that, they don't think about, you know, mm. in perpetuity as I said, they don't think this goes out there and that stays out there. That's in the ether now. And it goes out and it, become, it can become viral. And I've worked with families where that has happened. And I've worked with, with, with teenage girls who have been suicidal because of that, that, that's happened to them. And it's very serious. And we need robust legislation here to protect our kids. And I can't believe, <clears throat> sorry, in 2022, we have no protection for our children. And I find myself, I get emotional about it because I sit with it all the time. And we have, to, we have to start protecting our children.
1: When you say there's no protection <clears throat> there, you know, what are you specifically talking about I'm saying, in law?
5: Yeah, absolutely, I'm saying that... Claire, I I go into schools all the time and I meet like eight year old boys who've consumed hardcore material. There's nothing in place to stop them from consuming that. So you're, you're, you get a smartphone with, you know, the, the, the arrival of a ubiquitous internet and, and proliferation of smartphones. You're one click away from hardcore material. Mm-hmm. And we have cases in our society to know what happens when a kid who's got a vulnerability there, a small seed of vulnerability, it can, can turn into a pathological idea. And so por- pornography is not about, you know, watching someone have intimacy with someone. It's about, you know propagating really destructive ideas that girls want to have consent taken from them and girls are dehumanising these ideas and it feeds these ideas that girls are objects to be enjoyed and and, and to be desired and nothing about reality or feelings or emotions. And it's so destructive because there is the problem I'm saying about legislation. We need to get in and what I would say is we need to at the very least have teenage children put in their emails So that, you know, they might think if they're eight or nine, that if I put in my email, my parents will know or somebody will see what I'm consuming here. I know an an older teenager will figure that out, but a younger child won't. We need Mm -hmm. something in there. To stop them from this and we can't just allow them to have it
1: safeguards from a, a technology yeah, point of view absolutely that, that you know big tech is forced to step up here, you know? those calls forced. those calls have been made and they've been made strongly for a very long time on this like we see that the guard investigation is underway neil but behind that all it's the easy access mm. isn't it Uh, for this to actually happen. Well, in some of these cases as well, I imagine with these girls, they have been groomed. They have been groomed online. We're seeing in many cases it is peer-to-peer. But it's also a case, I imagine, that they have been lured into this situation where they're handing over images of themselves. and and, and where it goes from there is a very scary place.
4: And it's something that even on a practical level, as a TD, it does come into your office from educators, Mm. from parents. Mm. Um, They're very concerned about, you know, incidents are occurring in schools and it can be brought back to this and some very serious situations where children obviously have to be referred to services Mm. because of what they've gone through. And there has been moves in terms of sharing images and the likes of Coco's Law and stuff like this. But I think certainly, there's a couple of elements. It's not not one thing is going to solve this and to as much as you can solve it. If you look at the role I think definitely of the, the newly set up online media regulator and that role that they can play, again this is nothing to do with the dark web, it's doing dealing with established social mm. media platforms and messaging platforms, giving them the resources and also the power to make an impact there. And then it comes back crucially to our education system. Mm -hmm. And we talk about consent lessons at third level, but that needs to go into second level as well. And indeed in terms into the primary level as well in so many areas. And I think there is work on that, there is review, must be led by experts, those who are dealing with it every day. And I think there's widespread support from both sides of the houses to develop that further.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Mia, I want to come to your story. (coughs) an advocate and an activist who's here tonight, and you were just 16 years of age, mm-hmm. when you were a victim of sexual assault, uh, raped by someone your own age. Mm-hmm. When you hear about these cases, does it bring you back to your own situation and the trauma that endures well beyond the attack?
6: Yeah, the, the, the trauma that stays with me um, absolutely gets triggered when I hear cases like this, but it also just makes me want to continue doing the work I do. Um, I was groomed into sexual exploitation when I was 16, after I got raped, and the man who abused me took images of me, that was his main thing, and he took secret videos of me as well, and he put those images on the internet. And this was like Bebo, do you remember that? Like it was a long time ago. And that's when social media was only really just starting. So I managed to get those images taken down, but it's absolutely terrifying because when I was being groomed by him, um, there was no, I had no awareness that these images would go anywhere but him because I was so under his power. It mm-hmm. didn't cross my mind as a 17, 18 year old that this was gonna go anywhere else. Like, you don't think like that when you're that age. Yeah,
1: you don't realize, um, I, I suppose- You don't, you're, don't have long-term thinking. Yeah, yeah. you <coughs> are thinking in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that it has actually changed. Like you mentioned, Bebo, their technology has even come a long way since then. And how quickly these Mm. images can spread is something that is highly worrying. And we're in a very different space now, aren't we, to, I suppose, uh, you know, how it would have been viewed decades ago, how it would have been to an extent limited. Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly, there were victims and there were groomers and all of that. But the fact that it is now goes from your home to a global stage is really quite
7: frightening. And also to remember that this is part of a massive industry. Mm. It's a part of the huge global international sex trade. Porn is part of that. Prostitution is part of that. And I just want to pick up on Richard's point. I mean, the key word here is hardcore. All Mm. pornography now is hardcore. We have international research that says that 90 percent of scenes contain some act of violence against women and we have 50 percent of boys in Ireland accessing this for the first time between 10 and 13. I mean as Richard mm. says this has been streamed into our homes streamed into our lives it is grooming boys in terms of their you know behavior and it is grooming girls to I think become we're hearing reports of girls now being young girls mm. young women being terrified of sex because of the demands they're receiving from boys mm. who've learned what they should be you know should be asking for in porn I think this is something we have to be completely really really concerned about that this isn't the porn some of us remember of old all of it is hardcore and involving very violent acts mm. you know <clears throat> gagging choking slapping hitting spitting i mean for me there's no surprise that we're looking at the moment at legislation around non fatal strangulation because boys and men are learning from porn that this is something that they're seeking to demand mm. from women is you know strangulation as a sex act so i mean this is something we really have to challenge from a
1: legislation point of view what what needs to be in place that that isn't in place now richard talked about safeguards for big tech would you see sure. you know there'll be many people sitting at home that'll be really worried about mm-hmm. what their kids are doing up on their phones mm-hmm. in their bedroom and really worried about what they're viewing uh, what they may be asking of mm. other young like sure. vulnerable girls and and and, and, and what's happening sure. so what do you, what do you believe it would seem many people would feel that this is quite a powerless situation mm. it were powerless to do much here do you think do you think it's
7: it's possible to get a handle on this? I think there's a range of things we need to be looking at. I think Neil is right. It's a package of things and it is education, but it isn't just placing all the responsibility on the parents or all the responsibility on the young people. We need to be looking at the internet service providers that are facilitating all of this. I mean, we're having this stuff streamed into our homes via our home Wi-Fi. Why don't we create a situation where that has to be an opt-in? That if you want to receive this kind of porn into your home, you have to have opt to into that. The technology exists to filter, to identify, to block this stuff, but there doesn't seem to be the will, including by big tech, to use that technology. So I think we really need to be putting pressure in those areas as well. Yeah. Those that are promoting and benefiting <clears throat> from this trade.
4: And Neil, would you agree with that? Is that something that should be looked at? Yeah, no, I absolutely would agree with it. And I think it is something that is being looked at uh, in the discussion that we're having in relation to online media at the moment in the Dáil. Very big legislation in relation to Mm. the area of hate Mm. crime, in relation to how we regulate uh, tech to a much better degree. And we look at what's happened in Australia and other companies, in other countries, sorry, that again, it shouldn't always be opting into the parental block. You know, why is it always that you have to opt in as opposed to opt out? Mm -hmm. And that covers a range of things in society, but it's an obvious one. Yeah,
1: and I want to ask you about then the penalties when these cases actually go to court in the case of child sexual abuse material. Are they stiff enough in your view You know, we've seen countless cases, you know, when I was just researching and looking at this, there are so many men, mostly, appearing before the Mm. courts Mm. who are caught with hundreds Mm. of images Mm. and they're walking away. They're walking away on suspended sentences. Is that right?
4: No, it's completely wrong. And to be honest, when it comes to sentencing in general, I've been fairly outspoken that I think we have too weak a sentencing system here, particularly for the most depraved of crimes. But we want to get in a situation where we minimise the amount of times this is happening. So get back to source, preventing crime at source, preventing this level of exploitation at source is crucially the most important step. But when it does happen, that it is punished rightfully, not as some sort of a deterrent, but as some Mm. genuine form of natural justice.
1: Okay, I want to move on now to um, talk about what many view as sexual exploitation also, and that's the sex trade Mm -hmm. in Ireland. And RUHAMA, um, the organisation for those um, supporting... Uh, women in the sex trade has seen a 42% increase, Ruth, in women contacting its services compared to last year.
7: Mm. Uh, What are the group putting that down to? I think it's a range of things that's going on here. We're obviously in a post-pandemic world. We're obviously facing this cost-of-living crisis. And I do think that there are women who are... You know, it's very seldom this issue people talk in, in this sphere about choice. This is not about women who have a load of choices lined up in front of them. It's very often as a last resort. You know, all of the research that we've done with women in the sex trade say that they are there for one of two reasons. Because of poverty, because of coercion, or some combination of those two things. But I think in these really difficult, like, financial and economic times, there are more women that are finding they have to make this really, really difficult decision.
1: Are there women who have never been in the sex trade before who, because of the cost of living crisis have been forced into that situation.
7: You know, I I think that absolutely is the case and Before I came this evening, I just checked on the one website Mm -hmm. that has a bit of a monopoly in in Ireland in terms of advertising women for the purpose of prostitution. And there's over 927. There's 927 profiles on that website tonight, two of which are male Mm -hmm. and all of the rest are women. Mm -hmm. That is actually the largest number I have ever seen uh, over a long time of monitoring what's going on there. And that is very concerning. But also we have to remember that as well as (coughs) women having to make this difficult decision, this is a market that's created by sex buyers. It's created by the demand you know, by the men who want to purchase sexual access to women. So we need to be looking at that as well.
1: Um, Mia, you worked within this world and you've written extensively about your own experience. Um, the book is called Annie Girl, a memoir of sexual exploitation and recovery. Do you believe that most women in the sex trade are not there voluntarily?
6: No, no. Yeah, no, no. There would be like maybe a tiny percentage of women who are there voluntarily. But regardless of that, the the very act of... Um, having to say yes because you need the money um, completely eradicates any actual consent. So the harm is happening anyway. Like, I was there voluntarily in the sex trade. I was groomed into it, but I was there voluntarily in the end. And um, the harm of it is just as harmful as as the rape that happened to me. Um, the... The issue is that we're objectifying the women. The men have all the power in the interactions. The women have zero power in the room, if you think about the massive power dynamic there. They have to say, yes, it's a job. They have to have sex the way he wants to have sex with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, she's going to get harmed by it.
1: Um, so, because some would argue that um, there are is sexual consent. We also hear of, of sex workers who say sure. they are empowered, they have control in this situation. What do you think about that view? Or do you believe, as you say, once there is a transaction involved, <clears> then <throat> that that consent changes, that yep. idea of what, what consent is in this situation? Yeah, the
6: consent, consent is rendered void when it's been paid for. It just erases it. Of course, there's a small minority who are there by choice and, and are saying that, that, and that's fine for them, but I care about the vast majority. Mm -hmm. I care about the most vulnerable, not the most privileged. So I want our legislation to affect the most vulnerable and to prevent harm. So if they're having an okay time, fine. Okay, but I'm not concerned about them. There's also a point here that I think you've made that we never
1: talk about the men in this debate, the men who pay for the sex. Mm -mm. And if we're saying that, I think the statistic that was put out there was one in 15 Mm -hmm. men pay Mm -hmm. for sex Mm -hmm. in this country. Mm I think many people um, tuning in tonight will be surprised to hear the figures that high.
5: I I think so, Claire. And what what I've seen over the last number of years in my clinic, and it's you know, is hearing men talk about this as if it's a kind of a leisure activity, Mm -hmm. and that's the difference. There's Mm -hmm. the change. There's a switch in in, in thinking about this activity that it's like a leisure thing. It's like going to the gym or going to you know Mm -hmm. going to going for a swim or there's that's just a bit of harmless fun and they don't realise as Mia is saying and Gosh. so courageous in her story mm. and to come here and, and to, mm. to say it publicly it's such an important thing to hear and she must be commended for that. that's brilliant Mia that you know the reality the lived reality the lived experience of a girl that is in prostitution is there generally because they've been coerced into it they've been you know, manipulated into this life. And so it's not consent. It's and it's really important that we, 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 we stamp out these ideas that are out there that make it normalised and make it seem
8: OK. And
1: what do you think uh, is driving that high number, that one in 15, those 100,000 men around the country who are accessing those online sites who are
5: looking <coughs> um, for women? What's driving them? In every story I've talked with, and I've talked with a lot of men around this issue, pornography is the commonality mm-hmm. in all their stories. They started early consuming these hardcore ideas and they didn't want to, do, you know, they, they couldn't ask for that in their relationship, in their marriage or whatever it is. And so they went off to, mm-hmm. to, to purchase these ideas that they've been consuming. Mm-hmm. And that's the commonality mm-hmm. amongst it. And that's why I'm such an advocate for action against pornography and early access to hardcore, like Ruth said. Mm-hmm. This is not just, you know, pornography from the 80s. This is mm-hmm. hardcore extreme material we're talking mm-hmm. about that damages and warps someone's idea about what intimacy is. Mm-hmm. And I see the isolation, Claire, And I have to say it again. I work with couples and I see... I work with this every week, couples breaking up because the man is, the, 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 the male partner has been lost to pornography. Mm-hmm. It's addictive. When you consume a mm-hmm. visual image that's really striking, dopamine gets released, and so you search for that more and more and more, and it's a psychological aspect of that. That's addiction.
1: Uh, Ruth, I also want to talk about the number of women who are trafficked here. There are 800 to 1,000 sex workers. You're saying you went online, you saw 900-odd mm-hmm. women on one particular website um, here tonight many many have been trafficked here sure. haven't mm. they sure um tell us about you know their situation and and i i guess what what we can do to to tackle that specifically mm. because that is that is that is complex and that is very difficult, isn't it? Once it is complex. Into the country and taken out of their
7: own. Yeah, it is complex and I suppose the profile of the women that we're seeing is that well over 90% of women in, in our sex trade in Ireland are in fact migrant women and a proportion of them will have been trafficked and a larger number won't necessarily fit that kind of classic definition of having been trafficked but they are very vulnerable in many ways. So I'm just thinking about all the women that have participated in our research migrant, young, often vulnerable, new to Ireland, limited English. So their time in the the sex trade is really really difficult really challenging really isolating they're often cut off from their families so there's a host of things that we need to do there in terms of reaching out to those women letting them know that help is available for them women are often very reticent I think to seek help How do help. you
1: do that? How do you reach out in those yeah. situations? It is It's, it's it, covert it's Yeah very exactly It is very difficult I imagine.
7: and the trade is very mobile and women are moved around the country a lot which stops them from mm. kind of putting down roots and finding out where they can get supports so I think it's also on us and any of us doing this work in this Area, to be doing that outreach and letting women know, and just I, I think doing awareness raising around it in all mm. in all walks of life and all parts of life to to kind of reach those women and let them know that, yes, there is support. You can trust people to come forward. You can you can tell your story. Uh, And
1: do you believe that there needs to be more legislative protection in place? Like you talked me about action that you'd like to see. You're you're here as an activist and an advocate. What would you like to see?
6: Well, one thing to remember when we talk about trafficking is that the women get trafficked into the sex trade. So trafficking isn't a separate thing to the sex trade. They get trafficked into the sex trade, so no sex trade, no sex trafficking, no men perpetrating this, no sex trade. So that's really what what needs to happen. We have the Nordic model for the last five years, and it's about implementing that. And part of the Nordic model is to um, provide supports for the women in the sex trade because you can't criminalise the men and arrest them without helping the women to um, and is that exit out think? of the sex trade. I'm not sure I think Ruth would be a better person to talk to about mm. that, but the but it's really important that the that the focus is on the men when it comes to making arrests, but the men have absolutely I can go shopping online for their escorts mm. on on that website that I don't know if it's, I'm allowed to mention it or not well maybe yeah don't maybe you <laughs> don't mention the name of this tonight, but I know um Neil that Mia met with Helen McEntee
1: with a view to having um such large escort websites shut down and um, they're very easy access points one. for this yeah. For this trade. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think action could be could be done in this area? Do you think that's a possibility? I mean they're turning over millions alone absolutely. in ad revenue. Mm-hmm.
4: I, I absolutely do and I think there's a number of things both coming out of as conversation with Helen but other conversations she's had um, prior to going out on in maternity leave and I think one is really pushing forward the national referral mechanism where those women who have been in the sex trade are brought into the system and um, mm-hmm. that they have access to, that they're, there's a very easy access to you know, get out of the sex trade to make sure that they can um, access those supports that you talk, those wraparound services. Um, after they've managed to get that help, also it's the funding going into the the sort of um, industries that are vulnerable to the to human trafficking. So obviously transport, logistics, mm. the services industry. What so about those websites,
1: cloud. though? What about targeting
0: that? I mean, yeah. That's stamps.com. Code program. That's, I a,
1: huge, sir, that's, a, that's a huge, uh, I'll say, point of access. Yeah, a huge point, trading point I that's online the, and accessible to anyone on their phone the right re,
4: The real tool um, in order to tackle that will come with the online uh, media regulator, which is just coming in stream. Will so that be we, included within that? Yes, I've been told it will be, and I think that is the real um, way to tighten up because the problem with these websites <clears> is they're brilliant <throat> at evading the law. Mm. They're brilliant at purporting to mm-hmm. be something else. And just to go to one of Richard's points, one of the big issues is accessibility. You know, it's in your pocket. It's not mm, like 30 or 40 everywhere. years ago. Mm-hmm. And that is targeting that level of accessibility. It needs very strong legislation that is also compatible with European-wide right. legislation.
1: Okay, well, if you have been affected by any of the issues raised during this discussion, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks to Mia, to Ruth and to Richard. Neil Richmond will be staying on with me and coming up after the break, a four-year-old child's death is being investigated over a possible strep A link. Do stay with us. Welcome back. The Health Service Executive is investigating the death of a four-year-old child which may be linked to the bacterial infection known as Strep A. Well, for more on this, Fine TD, Neil Richmond is still here with me, and joining him is Professor of Immunology at Trinity College, Dublin, Kingston Mills. And via Skype tonight, we're joined by the clinical lead in infection control at the Irish College of GPs, Dr Scott Walken. Um, You're welcome along to the programme. To come to you first, um, Dr Walken, explain to us about... Many people will have heard about... um, and experienced it in its forms like strep throat and and other infections. But can you explain exactly what strep A
8: is? Okay, so uh, strep A is uh, a bacteria. It's a bug and it's actually quite a common bug. So uh, I don't have exact figures for Ireland, but uh, certainly somewhere in the region of 10 to 15% of of people in Ireland are likely to have strep A somewhere nestling at the back of their their, uh, nose and throat. People who are perfectly healthy without any symptoms at all. So it's very common. But uh, as you rightly say, Claire, certainly it can cause a sore throat. And that's the commonest thing that it will do. Um, It is possible that it can get to other parts of the body. And when that happens, if it multiplies, supplies on other parts of the body, uh, it really can be quite a, a, a serious infection. Uh, so, I mean, for example, just to try and explain it by way of analogy, you can imagine if you're in the zoo and the lion is in the enclosure, uh, the, ev- you know, everybody's happy, no, everybody feels safe. But if you go into the coffee shop and there's a lion or a polar bear or something in there, well, suddenly that's a very different proposition. So similarly, uh, group A strep in the throat often won't cause any symptoms, or it can cause a sore throat, which is unpleasant, but not serious. Uh, but if it ends up in the lungs or if it ends up in the blood causing septicemia, it's thankfully rare, but it is serious.
1: And that uh, we suspect is what has happened in those spate of cases in the UK. Um, we had eight cases and we had a case of a five-year-old girl who, who died in the north, and now this other case being investigated here. Um, about its prevalence then, Uh, This year. I mean, what can we put this high number of cases down to?
8: So certainly uh, the number of severe cases in the UK is is higher. Uh, But interestingly, I was on a meeting this morning with the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, and they were looking over the the numbers of reported cases of invasive group A strep. That's a serious kind. Uh, And pre-pandemic in 2018, there were 136 cases in the country. In 2019, there were 108 cases reported. But in the year to date, in the 11 months up to now, uh, the number of cases reported has been 55. So actually the numbers are lower than the uh, previous years. But clearly the health protection surveillance centres and the HSE and paediatricians, emergency departments and all of the GPs in the country want to be aware and prepared for it. Hopefully this rare uh, complication of, of Group A won't become more common in Ireland. But if it does, I think it is important that people are aware of it so it can be identified at the earliest possible stage.
1: Okay, I want to bring Kingston Mills in at this point. Um, we're familiar with you here during the pandemic, of course, um, Kingston, but to talk to us because your area of expertise is around immunology um, uh, and I suppose how your immune system reacts and with the, the number of cases and actually just generally the winter illnesses during the rounds at the moment, people will wonder, you know, what's happening? Are we seeing all of this now just because there's been such respite from it, apart from COVID, there's been respite from other bugs for a couple of years?
3: Yeah, I mean, it is quite possible that the the fact that the last two winters we were essentially isolating from each other and weren't transmitting respiratory pathogens like streptococcus, which meant that much, much less people got infected. There are certain people who are carriers of the organism, but Generally, the numbers of cases was much lower in the last two winters because of COVID and the restrictions around COVID and the fact that we were wearing masks and we weren't congregating. And that, that has meant that some of the younger population haven't been exposed, so they have no immunity against the, this, this bacteria. And now with the, the resurgence of, of, the, of the bacteria again, um, those people are now more susceptible, so it means likely that the you know the whole community has a has a lower level of immunity mm-hmm. against things like. RSV as well which we've seen a resurgence in this winter. So uh, you
1: can build up immunity through getting maybe a mild dose the previous season that it, it will be there and it will provide an, immu- uh, an immunity. Yeah and, and, in, in the,
3: and the more people that get infected in fact um, you know the, the, the less circulation of the virus or the bacteria you're going to have because of that level of immunity in the population as a whole and the fact that we didn't have them for the two previous years uh, and that's certainly one um, explanation for the resurgence uh, this year and I think the, the it's early days yet, even though we've only had 55 cases, we're still fairly early into the winter. So I would predict that, uh, you know, by the end of this winter, we have a lot more cases than you would have had, even in in 2017, 18 and 19.
1: Um, In terms of prevention, are there measures like the measures like mask wearing and all of that kind of thing, um, you know, for seasonal illnesses, for winter illnesses, and we're seeing a lot of people who are being admitted in our emergency departments, who are very ill this winter, um, do you think those preventative measures that we had for COVID may be applicable in some cases?
3: Not, not for this. I mean, this is still, um, even though unfortunately people die from this, it's, it's quite rare um, in Ireland. In in in, in um, low-income countries, there are a lot of deaths from strep A. There are around 150,000 a year people die from strep A, which is quite remarkable. In, in in countries like Ireland, the UK, not many die from this disease. So so having restrictions that would limit the spread is, is not the solution. The solution is a vaccine. Um, unfortunately, we don't yet have a vaccine for, for strep A. There's a lot of work ongoing in, in, in attempts to develop a vaccine. We're not there yet. Um, and that, that's, the, that's where the investment needs to go into um, to get a vaccine against strep A, like we've done for meningococcus and hip influenza, which have worked very effectively and almost wiped out um, meningitis caused by those organisms.
1: Um, Neil, do you think that we need to make seasonal illnesses more of a high priority in public health campaigns?
4: I think there's definitely a case for that. And I think we already see it in things like uh, advising people get the flu vaccine and and really pushing the importance of vaccines at all ages, but particularly amongst children. But I think one a couple of things that we've learned from the last couple of years is to trust trust our public health experts they are very good at monitoring these things uh, particularly in this and the evidence has been presented by the experts to the government things are under review but it's the awareness it's the focus on hygiene the obvious things to make sure that when the signs do appear that people are able to go to the gp if they feel necessary and i think this is definitely something that is of huge concern to a lot of people particularly those with young children but having come through two as we said two winters where we were all locked up These things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's about um, dealing with them as calmly and as as scientifically as possible.
1: Um, Yeah, on that, on dealing with it, and I suppose, um, Dr. Scott, if you're still um, with us, just to talk about that, about the signs and the symptoms. And I guess when a parent or when a caregiver or when you should worry yourself, um, if you have, you know, strep throat and, and, and at what point you should look for external help? General
8: practice and the uh, emergency departments are a scarce and valuable resource. So I think it is important to try and protect access uh, to, to general practice. People with very mild symptoms, uh, I think, are often very well able to look after them themselves at home. And there's there's a, a very good evidence-based HSE website called undertheweather.ie that can help with that. And of course, if people, I mean, two out of the three panellists so far have, have uh, uh, made a strong plug for vaccines. And I'd like to add my vo- voice to that. So whilst it won't stop uh, strep A, it will, it will certainly help with things like COVID and uh, the, uh, the flu. And if we protect ourselves from those, well, then we're not going to be worried, well, is this sore throat and headache and temperature due to strep A or invasive strep A or, or, or not? You know, So by protecting ourselves against those illnesses, we can reduce the worry and anxiety about, well, could this be something serious like invasive strep A? Specifically with regard to the red flags that might point to something like Uh, serious strep A or invasive group A strep. Uh, Well, there's no one sign or symptom that will point to that. Uh, And uh, uh, parents really tend to be quite good at identifying severely ill uh, children. And the types of things that they will identify as red flags will include a a very lethargic uh, baby. I, I sometimes hesitate to use the word floppy when describing a person or a child, but it does convey the concept. A high fever, not, not responding to pain relief, kids that aren't able to drink because they're so sick and maybe they're not pre- pre- wetting nappies or producing urine. Uh, so they're the types of things. But there's no one thing. It's it, p- Parents are often quite good at identifying if their child is sick.
1: Yeah, that sense that parents often have, you know, that the, the, the gut feeling that's there if their child is um, severely ill, that they will take that action. But, you know, people will be watching tonight going, is this all... You know, and we're thinking about those cases and we're thinking about the families in question, no doubt as well, but um, very alarming for people. Are we still at a point that, you know, to see such severe illness or such severe outcomes is very rare, Kingston?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the very important point to say is this is a treatable disease. It can be treated with antibiotics. Penicillin works against this bacteria. If it's caught early enough, I mean, it completely cures it. So, so um, it's not like some other diseases where there are resistant uh, bacteria, uh, like um, uh, Staphylococcus, for example, where it's much more difficult to treat it because of resistant strains. Streptococcus is, is treatable with antibiotics. It's a matter of diagnosing it and treating the patient as early as possible. So that's the, that's the reassuring thing. So the, the key thing is to make sure that, 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 that the child gets to the GP and gets the, gets diagnosed and gets the antibiotic if it's appropriate.
1: And imagine in the run-up to Christmas as well, there's going to be a lot of mixing, a lot of intergenerational mixing as well. I'm thinking about that when we had that warning about the RSV and how respiratory infections can be passed very easily to young people, to older, more easy vulnerable transmit. people.
3: Yeah, it's a very easy bacteria to transmit. I mean, you know, it's, it's a respiratory pathogen. You, you, you know, coughing, sneezing, you know, nasal secretions, all transmitted. And because people are carriers as well and they're, they're not presenting with symptoms, they're not as transmissible, but they can transmit it. And so it's the normal measures that we were all used to for COVID work against strep, a, of course, they do, but we're not going to reduce those measures to stop transmission of strep A because it's not called for. Mm. But, but you know, be, being sensible, if if you have young children, um, and and trying to minimise the contact with others will certainly prevent transmission. But you can't, you know, stop people from living. So it, it is tricky to introduce measures that are going to stop transmission. The key is diagnosis and treatment with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, well, that's good advice. And my thanks to Dr Scott Walken. Thank you to Kingston Mills for joining us. And thanks, Neil Richmond. Um, Lots more coming up after this break, including Condé Nast's glowing Christmas endorsement of Dublin this festive season. What do you think? Stay with us. Welcome back. Dublin has been named as one of the top places in the world to celebrate the Christmas season by Condé Nast Traveller. The list features festive Christmas markets in Europe to Asian cities with incredible light displays and U.S. holiday traditions. In Dublin, the travel publication featured our Yuletide shopping experiences, and our excellent pub crawls. Well, for more on this Fine 2 TD, Neil Richmond is still here. And I'm joined by journalist and founder of Goss Media, Alexandra Ryan. And via Skype tonight by editor of Air and Travel Magazine, Own Kari. You're very welcome along to the programme. Um, to come to you first, Ali, on this. Uh, this is a glowing endorsement from Condé, which is a, a luxury traveller's guide to Europe. Um, it's great to be featured, but many people will look and say... How is that? How did Dublin manage to get on that See, list? This is
9: what annoys me so much. Every time Dublin or Ireland gets spouted as one of the best countries or best cities, everyone is so quick to be like, it's terrible here, the cost of living problems. I know all that. We've just had a really tough couple of years where no one could literally travel here. The industry has suffered so much. It's such a celebration that we're not like we're in it. Even if people don't agree, I think the first protocol is to be happy mm. that Conde Nast is sending people here. And I think as well, people forget that Dublin is quite a magic city and especially the shopping folks thought that was really good because everyone I think when they think of Christmas in Ireland Grafton Street comes to mind and like even I think two weeks ago Jeremy Kennedy was singing on you know the balcony of Bewley's Every Christmas Eve you see Glenn Hansard, Bono, the Coronas, singing on... They like, come out
1: of the woodwork. Yeah, but like what other city
9: in the world would you have that experience? Like Ireland is very unique for their culture. And I do think Dublin in particular has so many things. There's Christmas markets, there's ice skating, there's drive-in movies. I have a whole list of things you can do here. But I honestly think it's the so atmosphere.
1: You and- believe the city's... Got a bad rap at the moment. Is that what you're saying, Ali?
9: Yeah, because I think anyone giving out that they're on the list. I mean, I know people are going to say it's so expensive here. A pint in Temple Bar is X amount. Fair enough. But Paris is on the list. Dubai is on the list. You, if you're going to be recommended for a luxury holiday, it's not going to be €2 euro for a pint. So
1: people need to get a bit more realistic. I and think. bear in mind, this is a luxury travel magazine. Own and Um, you know, you're talking about people staying and maybe dropping €5,000 on a Five star hotel stay for a couple of nights in Dublin. Is that the kind of clientele who'd be reading Condé Nast to say, "Oh, that looks nice. This looks like a bit of bit of fun. Um,
2: we'll have that." You can overstate this a little bit. What happens is content Nast gathers its editors together. And it's really only a small group of people in a pub or a coffee shop coming up with things. I know a lot of these people, uh, you can almost tell who has suggested what cities. Uh, what do you think, Emma? And Emma comes up with her two particular obsessions. What's really, really, really important for Irish tourism is that we continue to feature in these lists. Uh, there are 32 places uh, featured in. It's effectively the world cup finals we have a knack of ending up on these lists this, list. it's a, this is the new up, york oh, list and
1: how do we end up on these lists now we don't know was it um, was it emma you've named an emma we don't know was it an emma but how how, do, how are these decisions made like when we look at i suppose the list we're talking about hong kong um you know you've got new york you've got paris you've got london you know who says let's put dublin in there and why do you think
2: Exactly as I said, it's a gathering of people, and if you're forefront in these people's minds, the reason you're forefront is they're familiar with it. They've been here. Tourism Ireland does a great job hosting international writers. When you get a fan, Emma Stevens, the former editor of Condé Nast U.S. edition, was a huge fan of Ireland. Uh, The Lonely Planet, Tom Otley, was a big fan. You end up on the list every year. It's really important. Condé Nast is hugely influential in the U.S. market. When we start to worry, is when we stop featuring these lists, when the shift uh, of focus goes to per- Asia, for instance. Um, to give you know The list is eclectic. People would wonder what uh, some Le- Leavenworth in Washington is doing on it, um, somewhere like Bethlehem PA. When I saw Bethlehem PA, I said Bethlehem and the Palestinian Authority, no, it's Bethlehem and Pennsylvania. Good opportunity, by the way, for Bethlehem and Westmead to try and get into next year's list. But it's a little bit eclectic. And there are, it's very US-centric. There are 14 cities in Europe, places like Vienna. It's a good company to be in. There are eight in North America. A lot of them wouldn't mean anything. Yeah. And it's just keeping those positions on those lists is more important than coming first in them or fifth in them or sixth in them. We have a good, strong record of doing that. And I think that's down to tourism, Ireland's marketing, making sure the people marketing. making these decisions are familiar with Ireland. The photograph is of Temple Bar, by the way. There's absolutely... Absolutely no doubt. When it comes to Christmas and preparing for Christmas, they're thinking exactly uh, what uh, a lot of people come to Dublin for, which is the party. We're a party city.
1: Okay, Uh, Neil Richmond, it's all a bit of a PR exercise, really, isn't it?
4: You could be cynical and say that, but you could also look at the people that are in our hospitality industry, the people that have been shut up for the last two Christmases, our publicans, our restaurateurs, our hoteliers. They're putting on amazing events, amazing festivals, and I am absolutely not surprised by this. And the more we have people coming from abroad, spending money, driving our economy, we get more tax dollars in and we can provide more services.
1: I'm honestly thinking of things like, if you, if you do get your five-star traveller coming in here, forget about all of that. Just for regular punters, they can't even get a taxi home on a weekend night at the moment. That's the situation in our capital city.
4: People are having Christmas parties for the first time this year in two years. They're having great nights. They're having big nights. We see it. We see the footfall in our city centre. We see it in our suburban villages and town like my own constituency. People have the opportunity now. The spend is going mm-hmm. up the road. The service here, we love saying it's. We love picking out the the bad parts of Dublin of Ireland. But those of us who spend a lot of time in cities abroad know that we have a really special city and country here. And let's celebrate when other people say it's a good place too.
1: Yeah, and look, I don't want to turn the tone on it or anything, but I guess some people watching will be saying, "Look, we actually have record homeless figures at the moment." We were talking last night about the bad weather coming our way, about rough sleepers, and really, this capital, this capital city, and and many of our of our major cities, you know, there there is there is that challenge with homelessness, and there's people for whom lists like this they simply they can't they can't relate to this in our country right now,
4: and that's understandable. But it goes back to lists like this, and the revenues that this creates gives us the means to address homelessness to continually invest in the services for all the topics we've discussed here tonight this is good news that we have to turn into an advantage for everyone
1: and Ali do you think there's a point though that while this is targeted at a very much a luxury market that not everyone has the same experience of of Dublin
9: no, definitely. And it is definitely targeted to people who want the five-star luxury. Like I wouldn't be suggesting interrailers come here for Christmas because they wouldn't be able to afford half it. And the taxi situation, if I was writing that piece for Condé Nast, it would have been like, PS, order your taxi 24 hours, like that, uh, 24 hours in advance because it's so hard. That is true. There are definitely issues. But then again, when you look with others on the list, like New York and Dubai and Paris, you would have the exact same problems. So in the company that we're in, I don't think it's odd. Um, But no, like in general, anyone I know that would be going traveling that isn't from Ireland, it's from Europe or from America. Like, Ireland is incredibly expensive, but that's why it's become a luxury destination. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's a bad thing. Like Neil is saying, for the economy, we should be doing everything we can to inject money in. But yes, I think if this was on a different sort of publication where it was saying, come for cheap pints, I'd be like, absolutely do not come here. (laughs) But for what it is, it's luxury. I mean, they they mentioned the Westbury Hotel, the Marion, the Shelburne, there's so many amazing five-star experiences here and Americans in particular, like the tourism market there is huge. They love coming here, so yeah. I'm like, bring them here. They for may be these
1: experiences that many of us um, will simply not experience. Although we can all go and see the same, the Christmas lights and uh, the Christmas markets. Oh, and just to come back to you briefly on this, like you've travelled far and wide. How
2: do you think we compare? We, do, we compare very well. I mean, when Paris is on that list, people aren't going to Paris 18. They're not going to London, the East End. You could pick any Cape Town uh, tradition. You know, Cape Towners always talk about their crime problem. That's not how tourists see a city. We see our city in a very different way uh, than the people coming in. And the experience is good. The experience is not good because of uh, prices or weather or things like that. The p- experience is great because of the people. Uh, that is our, our, our hidden gem. And that long may it remain so as long as we keep that we're going to keep our, our position on these lists and we're going to keep the tourists coming here they come in huge numbers I mean 11 million a year before uh, 20 before Covid that's a very very strong performance oh, right. World Cup Championship that's a bit for tourists in Ireland there we'll leave it my thanks to Neil my thanks to Ali uh,
1: and Owen that's it from us our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight BMTV Good night from all of us Take care.